Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Jacqueline Dowd-Hall, founding director of the Southern Oral History Program and the Julia Cherry Spruill Professor of History Emerita at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Author and co-author of numerous prize-winning books and articles, today we're discussing her latest book, Sisters and Rebels, A Struggle for the Soul of the South, published by W.W. Norton and Company. Jacqueline Dowd-Hall, welcome to Working History. Glad to be here. Would you start us off by telling us a little bit about how you came to this story of the Lumpkin sisters, Grace Elizabeth and Catherine Dupre, And what particularly interested you about their individual and intertwined stories? Well, Catherine is best known for her uh, classic autobiography, The Making of a Southerner, published in the 1940s about how she was conscripted into white Southern womanhood and uh, freed herself from that gilded cage. And I, I discovered that book in the late 1960s. I was still a... I was a graduate student at Columbia, but living in Atlanta and immersed in a a community of young activists who had gravitated to the city as organizations like SNCC and the Southern Student Organizing Committee disbanded. Mm -hmm. I was working for a civil rights organization and trying to write a dissertation in the then brand new field of women's history. And Mm -hmm. then while doing that, I stumbled across her book. Um, her, the deep South ancestor worshiping background she wrote about couldn't have been more different from my upbringing in small town Oklahoma, but I was really taken with the book. I, uh, the, her portrait of the South is a, a, a land uh, scarred by slavery, but rich in a history of progressive struggle was resonated with how I saw the region, and I saw her generation of Depression-era activist intellectuals as predecessors of my own. They had lit, They had seen progress toward justice, the progress that they had worked for in the 30s and 40s, uh, reversed in the McCarthy era, but they had also lived to see many of the causes that they had worked for taken up by the movements of the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. So I really liked the book, but I was puzzled by it. I wondered uh, what happened to her fascinating older sister, Elizabeth, who makes a brief appearance as a wildly popular girl orator mm-hmm. on the uh, veterans reunion circuit and then disappears. Uh, what about Grace, who was a well-known proletarian novelist, she doesn't appear in the book. And for that matter, what about Catherine herself? This is an autobiography, and yet it ends when she's still in her 20s, mm-hmm. 
and in the 1920s and working with the uh, YWCA in the South. So um, when I moved to North Carolina in 1973 to start the Southern Oral History Program, I jumped at the chance to seek these sisters out. Elizabeth had died a decade before, but I found Catherine and Grace in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And my interviews with them, done in 1974, so right at the beginning of my career, were fascinating. But again, there was so much that they left unsaid. Catherine was happy to talk about her early life, her work with the Y, but she was reluctant to talk about the many, many decades she lived outside of the South in partnership with a radical economist named Dorothy Wolf Douglas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I later learned that both she and Grace had erased wide swaths of their lives from their papers. So that made reconstructing their stories a monumental task. But when I started doing so, I just became more, more and more interested in these women. I, I was convinced that by threading their stories through what turned out to be almost a, a century's worth of historic events and movements and intellectual debates, I could bring um, to visibility sites of creativity and experimentation that don't make their way into history books Mm -hmm. normally Mm -hmm. could recover a history of interracial coalition building and progressive struggle um, that was organic to the South and that included expatriates as well as people who never left the region. Um, And I finally, I, I was especially interested in lifting up a relatively, uh, little noticed left-wing anti-racist strand in the women's movement. Mm -hmm. Um, These women were part of that strand, a strand that linked women's emancipation to economic and racial justice, um, but they're not commonly included in it, even by the people who pay attention to that Mm -hmm. dimension. And for one thing, they were Southerners, and they were focused on regional disparities as mm-hmm. well as – which they saw as completely connected to racial and class and gender disparities. And for another, they were independent writers and intellectuals, and they – most of them, the, the sisters in their cohort, were relegated to the margins of the academy and – Uh, the institutions of literary life. But to me, that marginalization gave them certain advantages. It enabled novelists like uh, Grace Lumpkin to transcend the masculinist biases of the radical literary movements of the time and to center working women. And this was a time also when the social sciences uh, were severing the ties between idealism and research and the mm-hmm. position that Dorothy and particularly Catherine um, occupied in the academy enabled them to draw on their left-wing feminist and anti-racist commitments to create uh, new new knowledge in the social sciences. 
Mm-hmm. Let's walk back just a, a tiny bit to talk about the sisters' upbringing, kind of dive into that a little bit more. Of the three sisters you write in your book that they were, and I'm quoting here, estranged and yet forever entangled by their mutual connections with the South. So could you tell us a little bit more about their family's background, their upbringing in the Jim Crow South, and related to that, their connection to the the lost cause, which again, you describe as, quote, uh, giving them a, a sense of the Southern past as both a burden and an opportunity. So, you know, what is their background? How does the lost cause and white supremacy shape their early consciousness and then really their long-term relationships with the region? Well, they were born into a, a former slave-owning family at the end of the 19th century mm-hmm. and s- absolutely steeped from childhood in um, a belief in white supremacy and devotion to the lost cause. Their father had grown up uh, expecting to be an all powerful master of mm-hmm. land and slaves, and instead he found himself uh, working for the railroad. And to to regain his lost status, he reinvented himself as a so-called colonel in the United Confederate Veterans. Mm-hmm. He made a, a vocation of his involvement in that lost cause movement, and he deployed all of his children as foot soldiers in this effort to stamp public memory with the myth of the lost cause. Um, so that movement shaped their consciousness powerfully mm-hmm. and in negative ways, which they had to fight to overcome. And in many ways, this book, as I think about it, started with my fascination with how the ties between these sisters were tested and uh, frayed as each one grappled with that legacy in a Mm -hmm. different way. Mm -hmm. But um, I also argue that devotion to the lost cause gave them a strong sense of identity and purpose, Mm -hmm. sense that even though they were women and presumably destined to live for the private sphere, they had a role to play in the drama of history. They had a mission. And as their consciousness changed, they channeled that sense of purpose and identity and mission into efforts to lift up aspects of Southern history that were buried by the myths they had been raised on. Mm-hmm. Um, the black struggle for citizenship during Reconstruction, the interracial populist movement in the 19th century, the uprisings of workers during the Depression, and they spent their lives identified with the South, even though living mostly outside of the South, but trying to change the region into a place they could really call home. Mm -hmm. In your book, as you talk about Catherine and and Grace's in particular, as they mature and they go to college, you talk about their sense of social justice or their social justice sensibilities beginning to solidify during these years. Um, So could you talk a bit about their college experience, where they went, what they learned, how that ended up shaping their worldviews, um, both personally and professionally? Yes, 
definitely. They all three sisters went to a small women's college in North Georgia, Brunel College, now Brunel University. And it was there that they encountered the social gospel, the social sciences, and the far-sighted women uh, who were bringing the, the YWCA to the South mm-hmm. at that time. And could you, sorry, just to pause you, could you, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the social gospel, could you just briefly explain what that was all about? Yes. Well, it was a progressive era strand of thought that emphasized the importance of, in the language they used at the time, of bringing the kingdom of God on earth, Mm -hmm. as opposed to behaving in certain ways in order to get to heaven, in order to have a better afterlife. And it was belief in Jesus as a spokesperson for the downtrodden mm-hmm. and a belief that the that Christians in the church had a responsibility to um, throw themselves into making a better a, a better world uh, during their own time mm-hmm. and so this then, as you were saying, began to shape their worldview, their work with the why and so forth. Is that right? Very much so. Uh-huh. And the why, the YWCA was a major conduit for the social gospel, in the, particularly in the South, and particularly for women. It was the most important, by far, student organization on uh, women's college, white women's college campuses, but also on the co-ed colleges that black women went to. So it's it's an organization that I see as being much more important to the early civil rights movement and also to the women's movement than I think most people realize. But I remember um, vividly um, driving to Brunel for the first time to do research. My mm-hmm. expectations were low. <laughs> um, most scholars who wrote at, about Southern women's colleges treated them as basically finishing schools Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. kind of pale imitations of the famous New England women's colleges. And I think I was uh, unconsciously influenced by that. So I was really blown away at the intellectual and emotional richness of of the sources that I found, the student culture that I found. In the classroom, they and their circles were influenced by particularly by a young history professor who was part of a, a new generation of Southern intellectuals who were who were uh, bringing a familiarity with modern intellectual trends to colleges and universities across the region. He, he taught courses on women in modern society, he took them to visit settlement houses and factories and introduced them to the progressive historians and the ideas of John Dewey and the progressive education movement. Um, But most important, uh, as I said, in in their education, the most important part of their education came from these visiting YWCA secretaries Mm -hmm. who really were the ones who introduced them to the social gospel, which was the foundation of their political consciousness and also to the student interracial movement also important and central to that student culture were unselfconscious romantic 
friendships among women. Mm-hmm. I, I knew about the craze for such relationships in the New England women's colleges. A lot has been written about that. But I didn't know how ubiquitous those relationships were mm-hmm. uh, in the South. And Catherine, who was a very major student leader, she was everywhere in the yearbooks and so on. Mm-hmm. But she was also, according to the yearbooks, what at Brunel, these these crushes, these relationships uh, were called love casing. That's not a term I've seen elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And Catherine was the school's champion love caser. Oh, okay. And she was organizing these all-girl dances, having these you know, love affairs and breakups and so on. So because she never talked or wrote publicly about her partnerships with women, looking in depth at these student years was critical in helping me come to grips with how to write about those partnerships mm-hmm. that uh, and to write about them in a way that that didn't resort to um, reductive labels that she and her her partners would have rejected. Mm-hmm. So moving forward a, a bit in the chronology to the 1920s and 1930s, you tease out the the overlapping labor feminist and civil rights ferment of these decades. And how we see the sisters then really coming of age, becoming scholars, becoming activists, while at the same time becoming much more publicly engaged, also diverging from one another in some ways. So could you talk about, especially, again, Catherine and Grace in in this regard, maybe one and then the other in turn or or together, whatever seems most most relevant for you, contributions we see them making to the political thought and social activism in the 20s and 30s. And not only that, but then also how that challenged commonly held notions about the South at that time. So the, the 20s are usually seen as an a, a era of reaction uh, and excess, which they were, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, the Red Scare, first Red Scare and all of that. But by following the lives of these women and their cohort, I also came to see the 20s as a seedbed for, for progressive struggle. We know that the black soldiers who fought in World War One and the black women who got a toehold in industry for the first time came home uh, and take and took the freedom movement in, in new directions. But this was also a period in which uh, an anti-imperialist, um, anti-racist inter-student movement emerged, and Catherine was at the heart of that movement. Mm-hmm. She had gone north to study sociology at Columbia in the early 20s, but um, and a lot of people who write about Catherine say, and then she went north and she learned to, to be an anti-racist. And she was just not a 
the opposite was the case. Mm, mm-hmm. She did not. She found not the kind of liberal learning that she was looking for, but social Darwinists mm. uh, who were taught that so- government shouldn't meddle in society. Blacks were at the bottom of the evolutionary chain. The mores were so deeply ingrained that it was almost impossible to change them, and so on. But she found an antidote to those pessimistic teachings at the YWCA's National Training School. Mm -hmm. And the leaders of that school, where she took courses and so on, chose her to return home to build an interracial youth movement um, in her role as head of the student division of the YWCA. And it was in the course of traveling through the South with her black colleagues and and struggling to work with them on a basis of equality that she really came to see the South in a new way, mm-hmm. to see the privileges and deprivations that had always surrounded her, uh, to be able to, to see them now for the first time. But equally important, she learned, she had a education in class from the wise industrial division secretaries. It was one thing to come to have a sense of solidarity and commonality with the middle class uh, black women she was working with. But that still, I mean, one of the kind of what she calls that one of the eight, an ace in the hole of the Southern of racist ideology was that, yes, you know, a few people, uh, African-Americans can excel, but if you look at the mass of, of black folks, you can see the inferiority and so on. Mm-hmm. She began to think, to see both blacks and so-called uh, working class blacks and so-called poor whites, not as racially or culturally inferior beings, but as workers at mm-hmm. the mercy of a exploitative economic system. So race and class were really entwined in that period. Uh, so Grace had eye-opening experiences in that period also, chief of which was um, she was she went to um, France during World War One as an um, emissary for the YWCA, uh, most of the women who went to the um, to France in that time went as nurses and canteen workers and so on to mm-hmm. support um, the soldiers. The Y was an adamantly women's organization for women, and they were there to support French workers in industry and U.S. Uh, women war workers abroad Mm -hmm. so when she came back from that that was when she really made her 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 break for new york where she moved in 1924 with the aim of becoming a writer and she was very quickly ensconced in the far reaches of bohemia and uh, left-wing politics she was by the early 30s she was calling herself a, a warm fellow traveler of the Communist Party. She was uh, married to her live-in lover, who was a militant fur and leather worker with literary aspirations. 
so again, looking at, at Grace's life in this very different milieu in this 20s, I saw the period differently. People tend to think, who write about this milieu, tend to distinguish between the lyrical left and the of the pre-war era and the more hard-edged, sharp-elbowed radicalism of the 20s when mm-hmm. the Communist Party came to the fore. Mm-hmm. But I really see seeing this period through their eyes, see that very differently. For her, sexual liberation, artistic expression, left-wing politics very much entwined as they had been before the war. She threw herself into many of the major uh, causes of the period, the Sacco Vanzetti case, the Scottsboro case, uh, as uh, part of a new cohort of female labor reporters. And she also published her first and most important novel, which was called To Make My Bread and was about the famous Gastonia North Carolina strike of 1929. Mm-hmm. And all of this was predicated on the belief that art and writing could change the world, that cultural scripts, the stories we tell, are as critical as political maneuvers. So the 30s, uh, in the early 30s, this was when Catherine entered into a, a committed partnership with Dorothy Douglas, and the two of them were caught up in the project of using the social sciences to affect social change. Mm-hmm. And they d- were particularly devoted to working with a coalition of workers and radical intellectuals to push New Deal legislation, uh, such as the Social Security Act, in a social, democratic, inclusive, and democratic direction. And all of them, all three of them, and the people that they were working with, were inspired by one of the central impulses of the era, the notion that white-collar workers, like social workers and teachers particularly, should devote themselves not to raising their status as professionals, but to forming unions and allying themselves with the working class. In fact, they should see themselves not, not just as workers' allies, but as similarly positioned mm-hmm. as precarious and exploited labor. I was just thinking about um, looking at Annalise Orlick's mm-hmm. uh, recent book, We Are All Fast Food Workers Now. Right. Uh, really reminded me of this. She got that title from a history graduate student who was uh, in the uh, living wage movement with adjunct professors and fast food workers and home health care workers and so on. And he said something along the lines of, you know, they told us that if we got our degrees and did well, we would get these tenure track positions, but that's not true. Mm-hmm. And what is true is that we're all fast food workers now. So I think that was a central insight of radical intellectuals and other white collar workers during the Great Depression that is relevant to our own political moment. Absolutely. It's sort of a more uh, a more personal question related to the sisters and their interactions with each other. Were they, you know, at this time, especially when you have Catherine and Grace on their path, and then you have Elizabeth on her path, what was the family dynamic like at that point? Were they 
still in contact with each other? Was it fraught? Was it not? Was it the elephant in the room that two sisters are these social justice warriors and the other one is a standard bearer continuing for the lost cause, those sorts of things? Or how, how did that work on a more personal level? Well, through the 20s and 30s, I would say that Grace and Catherine were, in many ways, they were running along the same kind of parallel tracks, Mm -hmm. but they were living very, very different lives in different milieus, even at that time. There's a lot of difference between a New England college town and the East Village, Mm -hmm. the little magazines and communist infighting of New York and the engaged scholarship of Smith College and... They were their partners came from radically different social classes and so on. Mm-hmm. So they were not alienated from each other at that time, but they were not in close touch either. Mm-hmm. They were, however, beginning to be more and more alienated from their families in South Carolina. Not from Elizabeth so much. Mm -hmm. They really always maintained a warm relationship with Elizabeth, even though she disapproved of their lives. But they had four brothers who were horrified at Grace's bohemian lifestyle, would have been horrified if they had understood Catherine's romantic choices and so it was fraught Mm -hmm. they weren't they weren't cut off from their families but they were it was a it was a fraught relationship grace in particular during this period i talked about her labor reporting she was writing for the masses and the new masses i mean Mm -hmm. and other uh, in some of the communists the daily worker and so Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. and speaking very much from her as a white Southern woman who could testify to the evils of the South. Mm -hmm. And she talked about, you know, she wrote about her own family, not by name, but, you know, clearly speaking about them and their racism and her father's involvement in the Ku Klux Klan and so on. So if the brothers were reading anything that Grace was writing, you know, what wasn't a comfortable relationship. Sure, sure. So the the story of the Lumpkin sisters in many ways takes a profound turn by the late 40s and into the 50s as the nation really tacks politically right in the post-World War II Red Scare era through McCarthyism and so forth. So could you talk a little bit about how the sisters' relationships with the social their social justice work and then their relationships with each other in the South come to change in this moment as well? Yeah, they do. They change profoundly. They changed in in ways that were particular to them and very dramatic, Mm -hmm. but also in ways that mirrored a larger fracturing of the left-wing coalition that they had been involved in. Catherine and Dorothy saw World War II and its aftermath as a great opportunity for the labor movement, which was on the rise, for the New Deal, which they hoped to 
extend and and to take its export its the ideals abroad. They opposed ramping up the Cold War. Grace, on the other hand, like many liberals and leftists who went on to become cold warriors or architects of the new right, moved in the opposite direction. Uh, Dorothy was called before HUAC. Grace, on the other hand, actively sought out a role as an informer and friendly witness. And behind the scenes, she claimed to the FBI and the red-baiting investigative committees that Dorothy was a communist and that Catherine was close to the Communist Party mm-hmm. and so on. And the trauma of this era um, shattered Catherine's and Dorothy's relationship, but it also left Grace isolated and embittered. And um, one of the things that I, I try to do in this book is to remind readers for whom uh, I think this is happening more and more often. McCarthyism is becoming just a sort of catchword, mm-hmm. you know, for any, anything that you don't approve of. Mm-hmm. But to remind readers of what McCarthyism really was and how it worked and of the intimate, uh, lasting damage it wrought. To wrap up, just one last question, which you you talked a little bit about um, before when you're talking about, you know, we are all fast, fast food workers now. In in the introduction of the book, you write, and I'm quoting, these women made enduring contributions to an unfinished political project, the reconfiguration of race, gender, and class within the South's spatial and ideological borders. So my closing question to you is, why do you see this story as so important and relevant for the moment that we're in now? Well, a number of reasons. I'll I'll touch on a few of them. Mm-hmm. I think you asked me this earlier, and I'm not, not sure I really addressed it, how they, when we were talking about their contributions to mm-hmm. the thought of the, of the period. And I think one of their major contributions was as writers, as storytellers, who challenged the tendency to view the South as a romanticized or vilified backwater Mm -hmm. to see its uh, working people of the South as passive victims, rednecks, hillbillies, and so on, and to take the conservative white Democrats in Congress as representative of all the people of the region. Mm -hmm. And Grace uh, mounted that challenge most powerfully in To Make My Bread, where she wrote very sensitively about uh, Appalachian culture, and Catherine's autobiography challenged those stereotypes in even more complex ways, including a kind of subtle point that she makes about how it was only when she came to a new understanding of the South's history um, that included progressive struggle that she could truly transcend the miseducation of her youth Mm -hmm. because it was only then that she could reject the equation of regional identity and loyalty with white supremacy. Mm -hmm. She could identify with a different South. Uh, She didn't have to deny her identity as a Southerner in order to devote herself to building a, a different region. And that certainly that 
those stereotypes of the South have changed, but they have an amazing, have had an amazingly long life. Mm-hmm. And they're still circulating and they still affect the way people write about Appalachia, the way they write about the support for Trump and Trumpism in the South and so on. So I think the story is important for that reason. And second, it's important because it speaks directly to a conversation that has just gotten more urgent in our own time about how the conversation about how to face up to and work through a legacy of slavery, segregation, and systemic racism. And these women were drilled into that legacy, and yet they overcome it. So how do we face up to and deal with what has been called the our country's original sin? Mm-hmm. So that's another reason. A third reason goes back to the McCarthy era. I think that the fact that they lived through that era and that Catherine and Dorothy in particular came out of it able to go on with their lives and able to continue to support progressive causes and to play, you know, a role in the battle for the for the cultural high ground and so on. It has something to say to to our generation uh, about the importance of interracial coal of of having of alliances, having alliances and mm-hmm. building alternative institutions, and the importance of courage and persistence in the face of history's tragic reversals, which have happened before, will happen again. Well, you've given us uh, a lot to think about, and so I think that we'll we'll stop there. And I thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History to discuss your book, Sisters and Rebels. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Thanks again to Jacqueline Dowd-Hall for joining us to discuss her most recent book, Sisters and Rebels. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member of SLSA online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Working History.